Baker Lou, thank you for that update, and thank you to you, the congregation, because this church has no means of support apart from those of us who call it home. So thank you for making this a priority. Well, as we join together with our friends in the Community Life Center, I want to invite everybody to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. For most of us, by this point, Easter feels like a distant object in the rearview mirror. There's been so much that's happened in our lives individually and as a congregation that life just seems to have moved on, but Easter isn't finished yet. In some ways, every Sunday is a repeat of Easter. Every Sunday, no matter what season of the year we are in, is meant to be a celebration of the resurrection. But even more specifically, Easter isn't a single day, it is a season of days. If we were to turn to the first book of Acts, we would see that Luke tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus remained on earth and interacted with his disciples and with others for a period of 40 days before ascending back into heaven. Well, we are still within that period of 40 days since Easter. We're quickly drawing to its conclusion. But as we do, I want to take these next two or three weeks and turn our attention to three events that form the backbone, not just of the Easter story, but frankly of the church's existence and its very ministry. Those three events are the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost, and we will look at each of them in turn. And today, perhaps appropriately on this Memorial Day when we honor the war dead of our country, we turn our attention to the story of resurrection and ask the question, did it really happen, and does it really matter? I want to invite you to turn your attention with me to what the Apostle Paul has to say about that very subject as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read together verses 1 through 28. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ 
has not been raised. Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when, the hand, the hand, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, some of you may be familiar with the children's game known as Jenga, J-E-N-G-A, Jenga. It involves a series of wooden blocks that are stacked up in a prearranged order. And then the game proceeds as each player takes a turn removing one block from somewhere in that stack and then placing it on top of the pile. And the object of the game is to be the last person to do that because you know sooner or later somebody is going to pull out that last critical block that's holding everything up and the whole stack collapses. And if you do that, you lose. Well, according to what Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that critical block for the Christian faith. If you remove the resurrection... The entire faith crumbles under its own weight. Or to put it differently and somewhat boldly as Paul did, the faith of the church rises or falls on whether or not the resurrection actually happened. Which raises a question. Can rational, intelligent people who live in the modern world believe that it really did? Can people who drive cars and use smartphones and take antibiotics and rely on all of the technologies and scientific advancements that color every aspect of our daily lives, can people like us still claim to believe in something like the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ without committing intellectual suicide? Some people will say that you can't. 
I offer to you the story of John Polkinghorne. For many years, Dr. Polkinghorne taught physics at Cambridge University in England, one of the most esteemed academic institutions in the world. During his time there, he published five scholarly books in his field and was widely regarded as one of the leading minds of the day. His research was instrumental in discovering several key things, including the discovery of the quark, which is now believed by scientists to believe the smallest and most fundamental particle in all of matter. He was a highly regarded scientist. Well, in 1979, at the end of the academic season, he called his colleagues together in his office to share some news with them. He said that he was going to be leaving his post as a professor in the Department of Physics so that he could go to seminary and train for the priesthood. Most of his colleagues were shocked. Some of them were offended and embarrassed. One of them screamed at him saying, you have no idea what you are doing. Another one warned him, saying, you will be throwing away your career and your reputation. Well, he wasn't. In the years since then, he's gone on and published another 26 books, many of them on the intersection between faith and science. But the reaction of Dr. Polkinghorne's colleagues points out the widespread idea in society that you can't believe in the miraculous claims of the Christian faith and still be rational, intelligent, and scientific in your approach to the world. But be that as it may, the resurrection of Jesus remains the central claim of the Christian faith. To be a disciple of Jesus is to believe that God really did raise him from the dead. And to deny that God raised him from the dead is to basically set aside all the other claims we make about Jesus. Because if Jesus was not actually physically, bodily raised from the dead, then Jesus, simply put, cannot be who and what the church says he is. Either Jesus was raised from the dead, or he was just another hapless, radical revolutionary who died too early, like so many others. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in the passage we read a moment ago. He says it very succinctly. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. Now, can't we believe that Jesus was a good man? Can't we believe that Jesus was a great teacher? Can't we believe that Jesus introduced some important spiritual principles into the world and, and not believe this crazy idea that God actually raised him from the dead? Well, consider it this way. If Jesus was not physically, bodily, and literally raised from the dead, then that means death still has mastery over him. If Jesus was not up walking around on that first Easter Sunday morning, then we cannot truly say that Jesus has conquered the grave. And if that is the case, well, as the Apostle Paul put it, we are still in our sin. And if we are still in our sin, then we are separated from God and are without hope in the world. Either Jesus was raised from the dead or the church is one big fat lie. It's really that simple. 
Of course, saying that doesn't prove that it actually happened, does it? Just because we want it to be true, just because we need it to be true, just because we recognize that there are spiritual consequences if it isn't true, that by itself doesn't make it true. We cannot wish something into being by the sheer power of our belief if, in fact, it did not actually happen. The good news, however, is that there is some reasonable evidence that it actually did happen. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus does not require us to turn off our brains, put on blindfolds, and leap blindly into the dark. Believing in the resurrection is rather a step of faith. A step that can be taken on the basis of reasonable intelligence and sound judgment. Now I want you to notice how carefully I have just put that. I have said that there is reasonable evidence for the resurrection. But to say that there's evidence for a thing is not the same as saying that there's proof of a thing. We can't give inviolable, indisputable, scientific proof that the resurrection happened. And so there will always be those who will be convinced that it did not. And that's why, as with so many other things, we have to approach this conversation with a degree of humility and thoughtfulness. If we claim to have proven something that we haven't proven, then we call the intellectual integrity of our faith into question. If we overstate our case, then we give people further reason not to believe what we say. Paul says elsewhere in the book of 1 Corinthians that the world already thinks we're foolish for believing in a crucified Messiah. The very idea of someone who comes to save the world by dying is utter nonsense in the minds of most people. Well, we don't need to make ourselves, therefore, look even more foolish by way of lazy thinking and undisciplined evidence. We have to bring our best thinking into the conversation. But the good news is that when we do, there are pieces of evidence that we can look at. And every person is invited to examine the evidence for himself or herself and decide what to do with it. And this morning I want to very briefly offer up three pieces of evidence. There are many more, but, but three in particular that have been useful to me in my own struggling and, and searching on this question. And I just share them with you for your own consideration. The first piece of evidence is found in the way that the gospel writers tell us about the resurrection. There's some peculiar bits of detail that they include that you might think they wouldn't have included. There are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they all four tell the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but they all four do it differently. If you're unfamiliar with how the New Testament's put together, it's, it's helpful to begin with understanding that. We've got four separate accounts of the same story. And not surprisingly, each of the four authors tells the story slightly differently. They, some include some details that others don't. There's a different ordering depending on where you are and who you're reading. And that's particularly true when it comes to the story of the resurrection. When you read the accounts of that first Easter Sunday morning, depending on which gospel you're reading, you get a different slight version of things. Who actually showed up there? How many of them were there? Who said what to whom and in what order? 
The question varies depending on which gospel writer you are reading. But there is one little important detail that is exactly the same in all four of them, and it is extremely curious. In each of the gospels, the first person to find the empty tomb, and therefore the first person to proclaim Jesus' resurrection, was a woman. Now here's why that's curious, and I'm about to get myself in real trouble here. In ancient Judaism, a woman's testimony was generally considered not to be reliable. There's an ancient text called the Talmud, which was a commentary written on the Hebrew Bible. And in the commentary on the Bible, the Talmud, it is said that a woman should not testify in court because, and I'm quoting here, it is probable they may not speak the truth. I'm just telling you what it says. Now, I know that's offensive to our modern sensibilities as well it should be, and I'm not suggesting for one moment that I agree with that statement. I'm just telling you that in the first century, that's what people generally thought. Which raises an important question. Why do the gospel writers place the first announcement of the resurrection on the lips of someone whom the society around them would generally not want to believe about such things? If you're going to make up a story about something that's already hard enough to believe as it is, if you're creating a story like this from scratch, you're going to create it in such a way that you give yourself every possible opportunity to persuade the people who are listening to you of its truthfulness. You are not going to craft the story this way. So again, why did the gospel writers have the first proclamation of the resurrection coming from a woman whom the culture around them says could not be believed? Well, it is a reasonable conclusion that the gospel writers told it that way because it actually happened that way, maybe? Rather than cleaning up the story to try to make it more believable, Rather than tweaking the details to give themselves a persuasive advantage, they just reported the events in the way the events were reported to them. They didn't make the story up, they just told the story. It is a story that has enough oddness to it that we are forced to, at the very least, take the story seriously. A second piece of evidence is found in the change that we observe in the disciples. On the night Jesus was arrested, the scriptures do not paint a very flattering picture of these men. Judas, of course, betrays Jesus. Peter denies ever knowing Jesus. And as best we can tell from the gospel accounts, most of the other disciples abandoned Jesus. Now there is evidence in John's gospel that the apostle John was at least present to the crucifixion as a witness, but none of the others are anywhere to be found. They have scattered in fear. They are afraid that what is happening to Jesus is about to happen to them. They are scaredy cats, to put it in modern day language. 
Now flip over to the book of Acts, and you get a very different picture of the disciples. They're bold and they are fearless. They challenge the authorities. They defy orders to be quiet. They face imprisonment, beatings, and ridicule. And yet they go on preaching the gospel. And in the end, history tells us that all but one of them died as a martyr. Now, how do we account for that change? What would enable a group of former scaredy cats who were afraid of their own shadow to suddenly become so bold? And just as importantly, would people go on to willingly die for something that they know is not true? We find a very possible and probable answer to those questions in the content of the disciples' own preaching. What did they preach? They preached the gospel of a crucified and resurrected Savior. By their own words, these men truly believed that they had met a resurrected Jesus. And not just in some symbolic and spiritual sense. If you read the sermons that Peter preaches, he never once says that Jesus died, but it's okay because he lived on in our hearts. That is not what they preached. Instead, they preached that Jesus died and then came back and ate fish with them three days later. Now, critics will sometimes point out that just because the disciples believed this to be true doesn't mean that it actually was true. They will argue that the disciples were delusional, that they were acting on the basis of some grief-stricken hallucination. But you have to ask, if somebody's living out of that kind of grand delusion, don't you expect them to show mental instability in other areas of life? But the picture we have of the disciples in the New Testament is a group of people who seem to be very much in touch with reality. It's just that they've encountered a reality that's different from anything they ever expected or knew before. And it was on the basis of that encounter that they go out and begin to turn the world upside down. How do you account for that change? It is a reasonable conclusion that they actually met the risen Jesus. Which leads directly to the, to the final piece of evidence I'll, I'll share with you this morning. And that is the rapid spread of the Christian faith throughout the ancient world. An honest look at history. Set all religious claims aside for just a moment and just look at history purely as an academic subject. An honest look at history will show that the rapid growth and expansion of the early church is truly one of the most remarkable social events in all of history. The Christian church grew out of ancient Judaism, and Judaism was not an evangelistic faith. That is to say, ancient Jews didn't spend hardly an ounce of energy trying to win converts to their faith. You were either born a Jew or you weren't, and that was that. And yet, out of this non 
proselytizing religion called Judaism, there suddenly emerges in the first half of the first century this new religious movement that spreads like wildfire across the known world at the time. Within a couple hundred years, the Christian faith had spread as far west as modern-day Spain, as far north as modern-day Britain, and as far east as modern-day Iraq. Now, I am not suggesting that Christianity was the dominant faith. In any of these places, it wasn't. But Christianity had gained a foothold that far and that wide. Which is remarkable, given that in many of these places, the governing authorities were hostile to the faith. Even more to the point, consider the purpose of the crucifixion. When the Romans nailed Jesus to a cross, they weren't simply looking for a convenient way to execute criminal. They had much bolder purposes than that. The reason you crucified somebody was so that you could put an end to their movement. Usually once you hung somebody on a cross, anybody who claimed loyalty to them would run and hide and that would be the end of it. It happened over and over again. And yet in spite of Jesus coming to such a violent end of his life on the cross, the very movement that grew out of him against all odds spread far and wide. Now, how do you account for that kind of evangelistic growth? Obviously, something happened, something unexpected, something unprecedented. And while saying that by itself doesn't prove anything, the scriptures answer that question by saying that the resurrection was that something. The resurrection of Jesus was the unexpected and unprecedented thing which introduced a new reality into the world and in response to that new reality the people who came to believe in Christ took that message and excitedly carried it with them wherever they went and as a result against overwhelming odds the church quickly spread all across the far-flung Roman Empire. Take away the resurrection, and I believe you take away one of the most likely explanations for one of the most amazing social and religious transformations in history. Now, others have written and spoken at much greater length and much greater eloquence than I about the evidence for the resurrection, and if you're interested, I'll be glad to share some additional resources with you. But in the interest of time, these are just a few of some of the lines of thinking I believe we can pursue. The larger point here is that there is a reasonable, intellectually valid conversation to be had. You can be a modern intelligent, scientifically-minded person and be a Christian believer at the same time. You can be a Christian and still be a thinking person. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you can't truly be a Christian without also being a thinking person. Because if you are somebody who claims to follow a guy who was dead but then was alive three days later, that means by definition you are engaging in one of the deepest mysteries in the universe. So bring your thinking cap with you. But just as important as discussing why we can believe in the resurrection, much more importantly I want to conclude this morning by discussing briefly 
why believing in the resurrection matters. What difference does it really make? If the resurrection was just an event in the past, if it was just this really interesting thing that God did back there once upon a time, well, then we can either believe in it or not. It doesn't really matter because either way we go on with our lives as they were before. But Paul's words that we read just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear that the resurrection is not just an event of history. It is also an anticipation of the future. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus is a kind of first fruits. It's an agricultural metaphor. The first fruit that you harvest each year gives you a glimpse of what the larger harvest has in store for that season. It gives you a glimpse of what is to come. Well, when Paul says that the resurrection of Christ is a first fruit, it means that the resurrection of Jesus is a glimpse of what is yet to come. For all of those who are united with Jesus Christ in faith, God will one day do for them what God did for him. In other words, for those who are in Christ, we too will share in his resurrection life. And that really forms the basis of our entire Christian faith. Everything we say and do in this place grows out of that reality. But two vital reasons why we can summarize the reason this matters. First, the resurrection holds out the promise and the hope of a future reunion with friends and loved ones. Resurrection, if it is true, means that death does not have the final word. Because the grave will not hold us permanently any more than it held Jesus. And just as importantly, Paul makes it clear that we will be recognizable to one another in the resurrection. In the latter half of chapter 15, beyond where our reading for the day ceased, Paul goes into great detail about our resurrection bodies. And and, and while he cannot say with any certainty what those bodies will be like, he is certain that, number one, we will have bodies, and that, number two, those bodies will somehow be connected to the bodies we have now. Which is to say, while our resurrection bodies won't be the same as our earthly bodies, They will still be our bodies. There will be some kind of continuation between who we are in this life and who we will be in the life to come. And so we have the promise that the relationships that we have with one another here and now will not have to be permanently severed by death. Because that which makes us us will continue to make us us. Now, death will always bring with it grief and sadness. There is no way it cannot. The reality of death means that we will not see our loved ones again in this lifetime. But that reality of death does not have to lead to the finality of death. And that is why Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that while we grieve, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. Because ours is a grief tempered by the promise of what is still to come. And what is still to come will be even better than what we have known. The resurrection gives us the promise of that coming reunion. 
But second, while we wait for that promised reunion in the future, the resurrection also changes how we live in the present. Because if death is not the final word, then that means that we can give ourselves more fully in the present moment to things that matter without worrying that it will be wasted. Think of it this way. If death is the end, if after all of our striving and our working, it just all comes to naught, if that is the case, then why should we bother in this lifetime wasting our time with things like truth or kindness? If death matters, who cares whether there is any justice in the world? If death is the end, why waste your time creating art or making music? If death is the end, what's the point of showing mercy? If death is the end, why bother being generous? Why bother forgiving others? Why bother loving your enemy? Why waste your precious and limited resources on being sacrificial or, or selfless? If death is the end, then we all better just squeeze as much as we can out of the present moment because that's all we've got. If it all comes to nothing, who cares? But if it doesn't just all come to nothing, if God really does raise the dead, if there really is a new creation coming, then all of a sudden we are set free to lead a very different kind of life. The resurrection of Jesus means that every moment spent teaching a disabled child to read. Every act of kindness shown to the poor. Every ounce of energy spent working on justice for the oppressed. Every genuine effort to create beauty. Every word of truth that is spoken in love. Every gesture of mercy that is shared with someone who does not deserve it. Every intimate moment spent with family and friends. And most importantly, Every minute spent sharing and living the gospel, none of it is wasted, none of it is lost. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after spending many verses arguing passionately for the truth of the resurrection, Paul goes on to write, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know, get this, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Which kind of brings us back to where we started. The resurrection of Jesus is that critical moment in the Christian story. More than that, the resurrection of Jesus is the critical moment in the human story. Because it tells us that God is up to something that we hadn't expected. There is a new power that has now been set loose among us and it changes everything. 
Perhaps the best way to summarize it is in a sign I saw on a marquee in front of an old country church many, many years ago now. It read simply, God will have the last word. And it will be good. Let's pray together. Father, we desperately need the hope that you offer to us in Jesus Christ. We come to this place today burdened, distracted, fearful, and weighed down. In the presence of your risen Son, O God, give us the power to live with courage, to live with hope. Thank you that you resurrect people even such as us. Help us to live it, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Christ is alive and he goes before. That's what we'll sing in just a moment. But will we follow? Will we receive the life that he offers? The resurrection is an objective reality. It happens. The question is whether or not we allow its power to make any impact upon us here and now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then as we sing, I would encourage you to come forward and we'll pray together as you begin that journey. If you're needing a church home and to, to a place to seek to live with others in that power, we want to offer that to you. We would invite you to come forward. But the call is to all of us to open ourselves to his risen power. Let's pray that that happens as we sing together.